This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello and welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we are seeking how to do good, better, and faithfully. Uh, We're thrilled that today we have our guest Preston Hill here. He's Assistant Professor of Integrative Theology at Richmond Graduate University. He's a clinical pastoral therapist in private practice, an Anglican priest in training, practical theologian, author of several books that we'll touch on. And Preston, we're glad you're here with us. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. So tell us about your work and maybe your most recent book that's coming out soon. And you've done this focus, I think that's really important, of bringing together theology and trauma. Can you tell us what are you finding in this intersection? What's the important topic that seems so relevant to our moment of making sure that trauma and theology are in conversation? Yeah, you know, Christian faith and theology has always been interested in questions of human suffering. That's always been like a classical question to ask. But there's something, it seems, qualitatively different about talking about trauma. Trauma is not a form of suffering. That's what actually makes it unique. And I like to point that out, that you know, to be long-suffering means to be able to bear with something. But trauma, by definition, is what is unbearable, what seems insufferable. So when you bring in that category of these are events and catastrophes, the very edges of human fragility and resilience— that raises the stakes on old theological questions, and it brings us brand new theological questions. So this is a very vital thing. You know, we're asking questions about God and human flourishing, and humans flourish in the real world, or they don't. And the real world right now is like trauma. It's what everyone's talking about. So if we're going to have the integrity of talking about a topic sincerely, we have to engage it. We have to talk about trauma and theology. Mm-hmm. So before we go further, I want to kind of go back to that important distinction you made between trauma and suffering, right? That Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy for us, especially in the church, sometimes to really think of these two concepts as being interchangeable, but you're really kind of challenging that notion and saying, wait a minute, no, we got to pause for a moment and realize that these are two different things. Can you unpack both of those just a little bit further before we kind of jump into this further? Absolutely. Yeah. There's two people who first brought this up for me. One was Judith Herman, my hero trauma psychiatrist who has pioneered a lot of what we understand about trauma and recovery. She talks in her book, I I remember feeling so arrested and so seen in my own experience by what she said when she said that, you know, the problem with trauma is that suffering is blocked. You're not able to suffer. It feels unbearable and you sort of get this paralysis and psychologists, psychiatrists call it dissociation. You actually shut out mentally from the thing, whatever the event is. And so often, like effective trauma recovery and therapy involves creating contexts in which people can suffer today what they were unable to suffer yesterday, which is why the second stage of trauma recovery is remembrance and mourning. It's grief. It's processing what you didn't have the resources to process in the past. And someone who really put this well, I think, also is Shelley Rambo, a uh, trauma theologian. It's kind of a cottage industry now. A very small one, but trauma theology. And she made the distinction. She said, suffering is, you know, like wounding 
But trauma is the suffering that remains mm. in the aftermath of the violence. Even after recovery and healing, there are some wounds that just don't go away. Mm-hmm. And we need a category for understanding those things and how we hold them in a Christian story and tradition that sometimes contends towards triumphalism and towards total resolution. Where does that leave people who don't have total resolution? That's one of the things that Kent and I talk a lot about, and we've done research around this idea of spiritual fortitude, right? That Mm. realizing that we need to have more nuanced conversations about these issues that, you know, when people talk about resilience, for example, it's often in the sense of this kind of cultural narrative that we bounce back and everything's back to normal. When we've been able to see in our own experiences as well as in our research, what reflects what you're saying that, you know, for some people that doesn't just necessarily go away, that may be something that we carry with us, but it doesn't mean that that person's not resilient, but we need to have more nuanced ways of talking through these issues. Yeah. And to have narratives that hold that and interpret that theologically and that give us like a faith frame that can hold that, that aspect of human experience and not stigmatize it or leave it out in the margins or you know, to have an account of it. And also not to question your faith that, oh, it just must mean that you have a person of weak faith here. That right. That's the reason why they're not all better, right? That right. we also have to counter those sort of. I think there's so many different directions to go, but one is, so what we're thinking specifically, thinking about like the good work you've been doing about spiritual trauma and trauma in churches these days, as you said, it's a, a wide conversation across culture. Can you talk a little bit about spiritual trauma, trauma you see connected with theology that mm-hmm. happens? And we can talk about like sort of the other side of it, but what kind of trauma are you seeing there? Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think that question is an important one that needs to be asked and addressed. It's like really on the forefront of my kind of like personal, professional, academic obsession, teaching obsession these days is this question. Because, you know, I'm sure a lot of readers would be familiar, for example, with Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. And it's very popular right now to talk about trauma is in the body. And that's obviously true. We've got the neuroscience to back it up. But one of my worries is that people may be actually thinking, and I see this all the time with a lot of my therapist students, you know, they learn about the neuroscience of trauma or the neurobiology of trauma, and they go to get continuing education, you know, units about it, but they never actually use it in their practice. The diagram of the brain doesn't really come up. So then it's the question of what is that doing for them? Well, I think what it's doing for them is making them feel like it's real now because we see it in the body or it's in the brain. And we know the brain is more real than the mind. And so it raises this whole question, what if you've got someone who actually does have the you know, clinical picture of a traumatic reaction, but to an invisible reality or to a spiritual topic? How are we going to account for that? I think it raises a lot of important questions. And I've really appreciated recently Judith Herman, after you know, like 20 years or so of silence, published a brand new book called Truth and Repair. It came out last year. And her whole argument is that, you know, trauma is not just a stress reaction. Trauma is a violation of your moral framework. There's a qualitative difference here. It's more than just a stress to the body. It's actually involves this, for many survivors, not all, but for many, this profound sense of an existential shaking, a moral violation, a sense of certainly in cases of interpersonal trauma, but even with natural disaster, like this shaking sense of something was unnatural here. Mm -hmm. 
And what stories can we tell? What way do we have to of accounting for that? And I think, you know, the language of, you know, certainly in cases of religious trauma or spiritual abuse, we want to talk about the spiritual aspect. But I also think just that there's the spiritual overlay in my experience and a lot of survivors I've talked to, the spiritual overlay of all survival, like trauma survivors are theologians. Actually, Judith Herman said that in her book, Trauma and Recovery. She mm-hmm. said, trauma makes the survivor a jurist, a theologian, a philosopher. These mm-hmm. questions are raised, like that theodicy piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those big why questions, yeah. right? So I think we just have to engage. Mm-hmm. We have to have a robust account that includes the, you know, the spiritual dimension that takes people's spiritual experiences as a, a basic brute fact of their existence. And when you think about that, are is getting really concrete. Can that happen to anybody who kind of is interpreting things or has spiritual dimension of how they're interpreting the world? Or are you thinking this is specifically more in churches, youth groups, schools, and what are the kinds of cases that you're thinking about when you're thinking like this? What kind of trauma are people experiencing? So it seems to me the easiest grabbing point for this is pretty overt cases where there is clearly a spiritual trigger, you might call it, or a religious trigger to the trauma, or the context in which the trauma occurred is overtly religious or spiritual, or the survivor would interpret it that way. I think those are good cases to start. Maybe later we can talk about spiritual and religious effects, even if there isn't an overtly identified spiritual religious trigger. But, you know, looking at those cases, like clearly cases of, you know, what recent scholars, philosophers, and psychologists would call religious trauma, would certainly qualify or spiritual abuse is something a lot of people would talk about now. And could you define those for us? Yeah. Cause I've noticed like when you've been sharing, you've often talked about, you'll say something like religious or spiritual trauma and then religious or spiritual abuse. Mm. Can you kind of unpack? Cause it sounds like you're making a differentiation there. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's kind of an ongoing, still developing conversation, but I know that the work of Marlene Winnell, for example, she makes a distinction. She's the first person I really know of to try to carve out a working definition of religious trauma because it's not in the DSM. We just have PTSD. And for those that are listening that aren't in graduate school or haven't been to graduate school for a while, what's the DSM? The Diagnostic Statistic Manual. It's the Bible of psychiatry. It's what you, what you use to diagnose mental health disorders. And you put it on your shelf because it's so thick and automatically people attribute at least three or four extra IQ points when they see it on your bookshelf. Absolutely. And yeah, I just remember it. Gosh, I think I've, I have seen an original version, like from the early 1900s. I mean, it was so thin. It was not as big. as It's massive now. It's a huge book. So there's no religious trauma named in there. But I, I remember Marlene Winnell, I think this was recently, she defined it pretty narrowly as the traumatic reaction that comes from leaving a religious community. That's how she defines it. So this kind of like de-churching experience where you leave an abusive church culture and you have trauma symptoms afterward. That's how she defined it. But I have a friend, Michelle Panchuk, who teaches philosophy, and she's at the University of Kentucky, I think. I'm saying that wrong. No, Murray State. I'm sorry, Murray State. And she said, and this is why we need philosophers and psychologists talking together, she said, that's a good account, but just like an abuse survivor could still be traumatized while they're still in the home, you don't have to leave the home to... know, start experiencing it. That might be true for religious and spiritual stuff too. Mm -hmm. You might have someone who's still in a church that has a narcissistic leader and is, they're just having these trauma symptoms from this context. 
but they haven't yet said, I need to get out of here. So I think that's a case of, I think that's a more robust account of religious trauma. I like to think of them as co-centric circles going from like most minimal definition to the tightest definition. So I think most minimally like church hurt would be any kind of experience that you attribute within a church context was emotionally distressing, you know, to whatever degree you identify. Then a tighter circle within that would be spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse would be something more like we would define sexual abuse or domestic abuse. You know, there's a specific spiritual religious component and it's more than just the distress. It's actually like a moral attribution, like someone did something they shouldn't have been doing. And then down most tightly would be religious trauma because trauma is distinct from abuse. You know, you could experience abuse and not have a traumatic reaction. I find that helpful, that typology. Just That's just sort of how I've been workshopping it with students recently. And then what are examples, like if someone's listening or I'm listening, thinking, okay, what are the differentiators there between like hurt, you know, there's a bad experience, abuse, and then trauma is it how the person's responding kind of specific like i think we have to get more concrete on yes you know like what are people experiencing what does that interaction look like yeah absolutely so for example i i mean i still live today with a cptsd diagnosis and i remember a time in and cptsd yes i know i'm sorry i keep no no that's complex right. complex post-traumatic stress disorder so it's really you know post-traumatic stress, sort of this prolonged stress and trauma reaction to more prolonged and chronic, often relational trauma situations, usually growing up, childhood, household kind of stuff, rather Mm -hmm. than, for example, if you go to war and have this instantaneous, clearly concrete, definable event that traumatizes you. That's more classic PTSD. So I remember in my undergrad in Chicago going to church, and I knew this pastor, I knew he was a safe person. He was preaching, and the topic, I don't remember what it was, but the topic he was preaching on, I just started having a panic attack. I couldn't breathe. It was classic, I recognize now, this trauma reaction. I had to get up and go to the bathroom and just breathe. Now, that was like a hurtful event that took place in a church. I wouldn't say the pastor was being abusive toward me. I don't think then I would have said it even. I was upset with him, but... He wasn't abusing his power, I don't think. So I think of that difference. You know, spiritual abuse is more like this person is morally culpable. They have abused their power. And then tighter down religious trauma, I think, would be more severe cases, cases where, you know, it's clearly a traumatic event and clearly has traumatic consequences. There's no ambiguity about that. And, you know, cases like sexual abuse in the Catholic Church or sexual abuse from any church leader, clearly probably fall into that kind of category. Mm-hmm. What have you found most helpful then? So if we think about what happens, this is the suffering, the pain, the event. And then as you've done this work with theology and therapy, what have you found are the most helpful sort of paths for people? Well, I know if any of my any of my counseling colleagues listen to this, they'll be happy I say it depends. <laughs> you know, good counseling answer. It depends on the person, depends on the event, the circumstance. I think the most important thing, and this is true of all trauma, is, you know, one of the things that distinguishes something that you suffer versus something that becomes traumatic is whether you had any power or agency during the event. So 
like I remember one time riding my bike, I write about this in the book, riding my bike and falling down. It was on a whitewater rafting trip with my mom. And I fell down into like, I remember the seat of the bike had a Mickey mouse face on it. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that, but these details, it was heightened emotion because I fell down and hit this bee hive on the ground. So like bees are just going everywhere. Obviously I was really scared. I can still remember like certain details of that event, like the dirt on my face. I know. Cause that's, Heightened emotion is heightened memory. That's how the brain works. But I remember my mom's friend, it was like a church group. He picked up my bike for me and just said, run, Preston, run. And so I took off running. And I'm not traumatized by that event. I can tell you that event, and I'm not overwhelmed by it. And we know the listeners can't uh, see this, but he's actually smiling <laughs> as he's telling us this. So Yeah, this is a joyful memory of like my own agency. I got to escape. I, mm-hmm. I did something that changed it. You know, the blood was pumping. It's not that paralysis, that dissociation. And, you know, being disempowered, not having agency, feeling powerless is at the heart of the trauma reaction. And in my experience, what's common to anyone, whatever their journey of recovery looks like, is regaining agency, regaining that power, feeling the blood pump again. I mean, it's at the heart of a lot of somatic experiencing therapies sort of go back and resolve the trauma by injecting some agency into the story. I think that becomes really tricky when you talk about spiritual and religious contexts, because for a lot of people, religious contexts are all based on, you know, this authority, this hierarchy, this I submit to the teaching, or there's not really, the agency isn't prized in a lot of contexts as a religious virtue. It's actually seen as a threat to the religious system. So how are we going to have churches that support trauma recovery if we need agency in the context of someone's spirituality? That means we're going to start having to foster people's spiritual autonomy. And that, I think, gets really tricky. That feels really scary to a lot of church leaders. Mm-hmm. What is you've done work thinking about this in a church? What do you think, how does it look healthy in a church to be helping people who are trauma survivors? Oh, I love it. I think it's so possible to be a trauma-safe church. I think it's actually super intuitive, not hard. It's just, or I should say it's not complex. It's simple. It might be hard. But so in the book, we write about, myself and my co-authors, we write about these four principles of trauma safety. And we did a lot of thinking, a lot of like consulting, and we just came to this. We thought, you know, we might need to add more to this list, these four principles, but we really don't think any church is really going to be safe without these four principles. If you don't have these, you know, they're maybe necessary, but not sufficient as a philosopher would say. So we say these four things first, you know, a trauma safe church is going to be what we call a Hippocratic church, a church that above all prioritizes doing no harm. And, you know, that sounds good. That seems basic. That comes from the Hippocratic oath, you know, above all do no harm. Every medical practitioner lives by that basically. But it becomes tricky when you start thinking about priorities in church in real time, because what if doing no harm is going to, you know, immobilize a leader in their position of power and influence and authority? So, for example, what if a pastor receives an accusation to them, a high profile pastor of a church, but the accusation isn't true? Should we, above all, just stop everything and hit the brakes and make sure that there's no harm going on? Our answer is yes. Even if that's going to hurt the finances or your perceived reputational impact, you should stop and just 
cover your face and shield whether you know there's threat or not. And a lot of times people will say to this, you know, you're taking it too far. This is a lot of times what I hear. That takes it too far because what about innocent until proven guilty? And my response to that is always two things. First of all, innocent until proven guilty happens in the court of law. And the job of first responders is never to be the judge and the jury. Mm-hmm. That's a division of labor we need to keep. So spiritual first responders don't need to adjudicate the details. Your number one priority is safety and stabilization, which means you take everything at face value until you find out otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's what we say. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, even if that weren't true, it's just not what Jesus said. <laughs> it's really good worldly wisdom to, you know, try to cover yourself and care more about the image than the truth. But Jesus said very clearly, you know, your best witness to the world, the world will know your mind because of the love that you have for one another. And then in first John, it says, how is God's love with you if you see someone in need and don't help? So sometimes people will say, if we just air out all our dirty laundry, you know, people aren't going to believe the gospel anymore. And to that, I say, it's kind of the exact opposite. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if we, we see that out, playing out all yeah. the time right now, mm-hmm. don't we? We're, yeah. we're seeing that churches sometimes are more concerned about how's this going to impact our, you know, kind of our influence or, you know, our brand even. When it's like when we start becoming concerned of those things over the person in front of us who's hurting, that's what's going to actually derail things for them. Absolutely. And like, just think, which church would you rather be a part of? One that had the kind of integrity to say, we care way more about the people in front of us than, you know, our image or a church that tries to keep it together, I'd feel way safer at the first church. Mm-hmm. And with this one, it's also we've had some conversations with others about this, the importance of being ready for an accusation or something like that ahead of time, because if you do it ahead, you can kick into a protocol of how to do this in a healthy way that's protecting the person, you know, who may be a victim and then also protecting the community and those things can be done in advance and are really hard to do on the fly, I think as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just to like, think what's my priority here. Am I trying to protect the church or the people inside? And the fact that I had to make that distinction in the first place, it's kind of worrisome Mm -hmm. that the church is something other than the people Mm and their safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right, I believe so that's two. Do no, those. Well, oh, do no harm. Yeah, we're also, we on to so two, or is it? No, so that's I think those two subpoints of yeah. number one, do no harm. I'll try Don't to trust quicker. my math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to belabor it, but yeah, that was one. So that's do no harm, you know, protect. Second point is listen, and listen and believe. And that one is just that, you know, the one of the other hallmarks of trauma is trauma is this feeling of powerlessness. But the other hallmark is so many survivors feel so, so shameful for how they were able to survive. I remember this one woman who, it was a story of a school shooting and her child was inside and she heard the sound of the gunfire and she jumped behind a bush outside the school. She didn't run in to go after her child. And she was haunted for a long time after that. Like, what kind of mother am I? that I survived in this way. And when you have these experiences of the way you survived feels so shameful and it's hard to tell the story, there's this silence and shame. The antidote to that is to be able to tell your story, to be able to be heard by a compassionate witness who's able to, you know, break down that stigma just by being a witness. And so often what 
survivors want is to be believed and heard and just listened to. So that's the second point. You know, a trauma-safe church, we say, a church will never be trauma-safe if it can't name the trauma in its own midst. You know, you cannot heal what you have not named. So we have to be able to listen to the stories people tell, which is turns out is really hard, really hard to just listen. So that's the second one. The third one is empowering, empowering restoration. And to make this one, we drew from this idea called restorative practice, which is a really simple sort of internationally recognized method of peacemaking and reconciliation. And it's a really simple principle. It's just that you do stuff with people, not to them or for them. And so, so many survivors, like they don't want to be patronized. They don't want, I'm the wounded one and you're the healer and we're going to come fix you. Mm -hmm. That just reinforces the whole stigma. What we need is to say to a survivor, I don't see you as damaged agency. How can I join you in this? That's incredibly, I mean, that'll be really challenging for some survivors, but that is required in the long run. We need to have cultures that walk alongside people, do stuff with them, not to or for them. And so the final one we say is just to engage the body, engage and bless the body. Again, I hate, sorry to keep quoting Judith Herman, but I really like Judith Herman. She said, um, trauma recovery always begins with safety and safety always begins with the body. And that's a pretty basic insight. You know, children aren't capable of profound language, but they are capable of so much meaning through touch through the body. And so often trauma is this loss of bodily integrity. Survivors need places that can hold their bodies, that can give them a way to regulate what is so dysregulated. Places that are not triggering, but also places that invite them to learn to move again, to get out of that paralysis. So I think liturgy is a great gift here. Mm-hmm. You know, I know for me, going to a liturgical church was like great trauma therapy because I didn't have to think about what I was doing with my body. I had just a framework where someone told me what to do. The one part I hated was the passing of the peace. And that was still like hard because that's like the unscripted, you know, social interaction part. COVID, COVID maybe helped a little bit. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So I think those are the four. Great. Thanks, Jess. Do no harm, listen, empower, and engage the body. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing those in your work to bring those together. We talked about this briefly before we got on, but so appreciate your thoughtfulness and engaging, caring for people. Do you mind sharing a little bit about why you got involved in this work? Like what called you into this really difficult space that I also appreciated you called in one of your books or interviews, uh, like sort of a sacred space. But hmm. um, can you tell us how you, how you got into this kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. So it's for me, it's autobiographical. So, and it took a long time, I think, just because there aren't, in my experience, there weren't spaces to talk about this, but I'm a survivor of some severe forms of childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And that for me was, it was isolating until I found others who were willing to name that. Mm-hmm. I think it's especially a really, really big problem for men. It's really, really hard for men to talk about it. I think it's especially hard for evangelical white men to talk about it because you know, it's the opposite of the picture of power that is modeled for us by so many leadership positions. And that's a whole topic unto itself, like masculinity mm-hmm. and American identity and Christianity and all that, you know, like rule number one is never show yourself as vulnerable or having been transgressed by another. You know, that is not powerful, which is the masculine ideal. 
but that's just so silly. That has nothing to do with the whole Christian idea and message, but we all like live and operate in our leadership positions as if we thought that were really the case. So I think, you know, finding places and languages that allowed back to the beginning, what you're talking about spaces in a Christian story that allow us to hold experiences like this. So that was a big question for me early on. I mean, it drove me to my master's and PhD was like, I had big questions about God. I had big questions about how that really fit with my life. Like, this is my life. This is really who I am. What's going on in in the world for me? You know, how is God supposed to be my divine parent? Mm -hmm. How much am I allowed to let my experience and story reshape and challenge this Christian story? Mm -hmm. Or is my context a threat to the faith? Mm -hmm. So it's a question of how we relate experience and theology which is really an ancient question that involves how do we relate science and theology? Mm-hmm. How do we relate you know, concrete human experience with this faith frame? So it's been a real, a real gift and privilege for me to be able to integrate that work personally, mm-hmm. to be able to work with other people, to be able to provide other people, you know, pay to them what was offered to me, context where they can break that code of silence mm-hmm. and find recovery and meaning in life. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah. Preston and that you're sharing through your work yeah being so generous you know with others who have gone through similar experiences mm-hmm. thank you and I was just thinking for we'll put this in the show notes but for people who are finding this really helpful uh, your books are Dawn of Sunday the Trinity and Trauma Safe Churches and then upcoming one is Christ and Trauma Theology East of Eden and so that can be a good place for people to follow up Jamie, any thoughts for you? Just that you've done work in trauma area and just would love to hear if you have any reflections before we, we wrap up here. There's so much each day. There are about six different conversations that would be full conversations of their own that could spin out. But we have, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, just, you know, Preston and kind of reflecting on what you were sharing, one of the things that just really stood out to me that, you know, in addition to it being hard, I think, for the survivor to share their story that oftentimes those who might be willing to listen, oftentimes I think struggle of like, what if I do this wrong? Am I going to cause even more trauma? Or, and one of the things I loved about what you were saying that at the end of the day, most people are needing somebody to just bear witness to what they've gone through or what they are going through. And so I just really appreciate that about how much healing can happen from just being in a place with another person who's able to sit with and help hold that pain for just a little while. So yeah, I agree. It's hard work to listen, but mm-hmm. it's actually very simple. It's just just listening and being and not rushing. We're so anxious in our listening. We want to rush to fill that silence, but just let someone share and just be silent and tell them you believe them and you care and you're grateful. I find gratitude is a great, like, I'm. that's always my posture. I'm so grateful that you shared that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that often gives me comfort because I am the type of person who is highly likely to put their foot in their mouth on a regular basis, hence what happens every week on this podcast. But is that notion, too, that right, that our our presence really says more than our words at the end of the day. Mm. Feels like a, a really good place to end. Thank you for sharing your story and sharing your work with us. And we are grateful because I think this is so important for individuals, for churches, for the church, for society to do this. So thanks for your work, Preston, and look forward to staying in conversation with you. And I think we see these ties to how creating a church like you talked about to be able to listen. All these are also part of this theme we have of learning how to do good better that we want to, as we work with people, 
ourselves if we've survived trauma, we work with people who have survived trauma, all these are really important part. Whether we're in therapy or something psychological or psychiatric, or you know, working in a community, doing community development, all these are, are really helpful guides to go forward. So Preston, thanks to you. And thank you to each of you who are listening for being on this journey with us of learning how to do good better. Hey, 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 hey,